Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 to the end. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You're not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is on this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then? that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, 
No one dared to ask him any more questions. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Looking to you at this time to open the eyes of our hearts that we would behold wonderful things from your holy word this morning at this time. Asking you that you would remove the distractions that so easily plague our minds and emotions and everything else. That you would help us to fix our minds on you. To set our, our hearts and our minds on things above where Christ is seated. And that it is by your word that you would speak to us to cause this to happen. Thank you that your word is unchanging just like you. And as we continue to look into this passage today, I ask you that you would help us to see the unchangeable truth, even if there may be applications of that truth that change, that we would hold to the truth of your word through every age, through every season of our life, and that when we come to the end of our lives, that we would see that we have actually been held by your truth, that we have been kept by you, by your Spirit. And so we thank you for sending Christ to pass every test that he went through on our behalf and to actually accomplish through his testing an everlasting life and an eternal salvation for whoever will look to him in repentance and faith and also to set us an example for how we too can stand the tests that come to us in this life how we can be faithful to the end forgive us when we've been unfaithful to you in this past week even in this past morning Forgive us when we are careless to even think about you, to think about your will. Help us to do what this first and greatest commandment says, to love you with our minds, to love you with our hearts, and to increasingly know what that means and apply it by the power of your Spirit so that our lives would gradually become more and more lives of worship not just days or times but help us to be shaped by your spirit to be people that live lives of worship and to do this so that we can shine forth in this world shine the light of Christ in the darkness to those who have not yet believed in him so we ask that you would do something that only you can do, that someone listening, whether here or listening over the media, would hear the gospel and believe, even for the first time would believe in the gospel, and that those of us who do believe would be strengthened in our faith to believe it all the more. 
until we see Christ not by faith but by sight until that time we ask that you'd keep us faithful for we ask these things in his name Amen Uh, for those of you who if anyone might have walked in just now while we were praying or reading again we're reading from the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 22 starting in verse 15 to the end and based on the context of what's going on in this passage today we see three different groups and three different tests that Jesus goes through and I thought of a courtroom so the, the title of this sermon is cross-examining Jesus really this is in a sense what's happening Jesus is being tested and examined and they're trying to trap him in his words that's their intention and I have four points that come out of this passage today that I want us to think about the first two are really in the negative first of all the wrong kind of unity we see a type of unity that didn't exist up until this point and all of a sudden people who once didn't want to get together are unified for the wrong reason first of all we see the wrong kind of unity but secondly we see the wrong view of scripture of our future life and of God thirdly we see the right order and application of God's commands and lastly we see the right response to Jesus through what was basically said in silence so let's think about the the context again the background remember last week we saw that Jesus went into the, the temple and flipped over the tables and basically the the Pharisees and the chief priests said by what authority do you come into this temple and do these things and Jesus asked them a question tell me this um, John the Baptist was his ministry from God or from man if you answer this question then I'll tell you by what authority and basically out of the fear of man and being man pleasers they decided that they couldn't give him an answer so they said we, we, we're not going to answer you we don't know what to answer you and Jesus said neither will I give you an answer but then he goes into three parables the parable of the two sons the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding banquet, banquet and it's in light of these parables that Jesus has basically upset these Pharisees and chief priests because they realize if you look at the end of um, chapter 22 verse 14 or rather chapter 21 uh, verse 45 through 46 you see that the chief priests and the Pharisees they realized that Jesus was talking about them in these parables he was telling parables about them rejecting God's chosen Messiah and they're very upset so they try this new strategy trying to trap Jesus so that he can be arrested and the the historical moment that we're watching these things happen in is actually during the week of Passover this is approaching the Passover that time when they would celebrate 
when Jesus, or rather when, when God um, actually took his people out of Egypt and they celebrated that he saved them and, and spared their firstborn son by taking the life of an innocent, spotless lamb. And so during this week, they would also be examining the sheep. They would be examining and cross-examining their animals to make sure that they could find a lamb without blemish. And so behind the scenes of what we can see humanly through this cross-examination, I think in hindsight we could kind of say that what's also taking place is that this is an example of earth putting heaven's lamb on the examination table so that we see the the examination of this lamb of God as John said to, to see is he the spotless lamb will he pass all these tests they're not innocent tests they're evil in their intent but these are the things that are going on kind of behind the scenes that we should keep in mind and we'll look into these some more tonight in the Bible study but let's look at this first point in verse 15 through 22 we see first of all the wrong kind of unity at this time in the history of the nation of Israel there were basically five uh, groups of people that were prominent that that operated in a form of leadership some of the Jews would want to go with one of these five groups although most of the nation of Israel was actually not a part of these groups but they would sort of lean in one direction or another um, the first three groups, which I'll mention, are the ones in the passage today. The Pharisees, which believe it or not, um, we, 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 we don't tend to think of it this way, but for them, the Pharisees were more popular than any of these other five groups. The Pharisees believed in the full inspiration of the Word of God up to that point. Genesis all the way through Malachi. Before that 400 or so year of period of silence from God they believed that every word every jot and tittle every single vowel everything in the word of God was God breathed as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for everything we need this is what the Pharisees believed and they tried to actually keep the nation of Israel while they, while they were under Roman rule following God's law. Of course, they did add their own traditions, which was eventually the big problem that they caused and that Jesus had with them. But this was the first group. Then they had another group called the Herodians, which were basically, they, they could have different jobs, but this was a Jew, a group of Jewish leaders that were in favor of Rome. At least they acted as if they were okay with, with Herod Antipas at the time, who was the governor of that province. Um, in, 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 he was a governor for Rome, and they were in favor of his rule and of his taxes. And so as you can imagine, because they lived like this, they were seen as sellouts. They were called the Herodians after Herod. And then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe that all of God's word to this point was breathed out by God. But they believed that the, the first five books of the Bible were the books that were inspired by God. That's why you see, which we'll get to in our second point, 
that they, they only quote Moses. They go back and they say, didn't Moses say such and such? And so Jesus responds to them with Moses too. And they also doubted the supernatural. Some of them didn't believe in angels at all. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So when they ask this question about the resurrection in this passage today, it's not even a real question. They're trying to trap Jesus. But when we look at verses 15 through 22, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together. So these are the three major groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. And then you had another group called the Essenes. The Essenes who moved into a little place called Qumran, kind of north of the Dead Sea. These were the people who found the Dead Sea Scrolls eventually. And then you had another group called the Zealots. You know, Simon, chopping off an ear. He was kind of known as Simon, the Zealot. And there were other people who thought even Jesus was a Zealot. He never portrayed that. But these were people who basically would lead revolts against Rome. They were the complete opposite of the Herodians. There was a lot of Jews who would have actually respected these Zealots. Although maybe they would have said, I like your lifestyle, I like your ideas, but I, I don't think I'm going to join you <laughs> because we can't beat Rome. But these people would also live off kind of in the cliffs out in the desert and then come and try to destroy the Roman rule. In fact, if you've ever heard of the book of, of Maccabees, there was a guy named Jacob Maccabeus who led a revolt when one of the Roman rulers was sacrificing to false gods on Jewish temple grounds, on the, the very place where God had told his people to sacrifice to him. And that, that was the tipping point. And he said, this is enough. And they actually won that revolt for a period of time. They had a little bit of peace, but that wasn't long won. So you had the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the zealots. But largely speaking, the majority of the nation of Israel were just people trying to get by, even if they preferred one of these groups over the other. But these were the, the sort of leaders in Israel. They led in a particular way. So you see here these three groups. These were the main groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And there's something important that we need to remember. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. But all of a sudden, notice what we see the Pharisees doing in verse 15. The Pharisees, after they heard these parables, they went out and they laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with these Herodians. And remember, the Pharisees were the, the most preferred group by the people because they held God's word in the highest regard. But the Herodians were the opposite because they held Herod's rule in a high regard. So when they asked this question, which I'm sure many people today wish Jesus answered differently, this is how the trap works. Look at verse 17. They start with flattery. Actually go back a bit to, to verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Again, I've said this before, Matthew has, his, his writings are filled with irony. Even as the people are saying these things to Jesus, they don't seem to understand that he doesn't care what they say. He doesn't care who they are. He will not be entrapped. So they're right. You pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? When they ask Jesus this question, the first thing we should see is that Jesus doesn't start talking about the Roman rule. Maybe that's the first thing that our minds would think about. We get into discussions like this. Are the prices of, you fill in the blank, right in our country? Or if you're listening and you're part of another country or have dual citizenship, should taxes be so high? And we'll get more into this tonight. But Jesus is not about to give a blueprint for how his people should interact with the government that's in authority. He's about to give a precept, basically, a principle that is very important. And, and keep in mind here that the Roman rule was far more oppressive than any government that people complain about today. We are far more blessed in the Cayman Islands, in the U.S., and in England, and all these different places where those who we usually interact with complain about and all the Caribbean countries too. Most countries in the world are not as oppressed as the Jews were by this rule. But Jesus actually says, bring me the, bring me the denarius. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And what Jesus is showing them is this. This coin, which has Caesar's face on it, he's the one ruling over us. You give to him the little portion that he should get. This is not a discussion about whether Caesar is good or not. And the trap is this. If Jesus says it's right to pay taxes, then the Pharisees can say, you see, he is for them. In a sense, he's like the Herodians. It, it's almost like they're saying, pick a side. Are you with us? Or are you with them? But they're somehow working together, asking this question. But if Jesus says, you know, taxes are right, well, he'll be seen that. But if he says taxes are wrong, it's wrong to pay taxes. Well, right away, he's going to be arrested and taken away because the Herodians will report it to their little buddy Herod and he'll put Jesus in jail and they're each trying to trap Jesus and stop his ministry. But here's Jesus' answer. He doesn't answer in either way. He says, you give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. And the implication there is whose imprint is on you. But it's more than that. It's not just whose portrait is on you. It's not just whose inscription do we all bear. 
It's how are you responding to the very one who's standing before you, who's sent by God. See, for them to render to God what is God's, they should put aside their distinctions as Pharisees and Herodians and recognize that they are the ones in the parable of the tenants. Remember that the owner of the land sends uh, multiple people. And last of all, you see in verse 37 of chapter 21, last of all, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. That was the attitude. So to render to God the things that are God, God's would actually be to accept Christ. So Jesus doesn't even deal with their question in the way they want. And he leaves them, as usual, stunned. They were amazed and they walked away. But secondly, we see the wrong view of Scripture. We see, first of all, two people who are not friends uniting. Not to follow Christ, but to challenge Him. We have to be careful with how we ask questions to Christ. Sometimes we might not be trying to trap Him, but we all know people who do what the Sadducees are about to do. People who have the wrong view of Scripture and ask questions out of doubt and unbelief and a lack of love for Christ. So secondly, we see the wrong view of Scripture and of our future life and of God. Look at verse 23. The same day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now Matthew would have pointed this out because, again, his primary audience at this time when he writes the Gospel of Matthew are the Jewish people. And, and, and the Jews would have read this or heard this read and said, yeah, they don't believe, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. You know, they don't believe in supernatural, they so forth. But then he says that they came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now this was something that was being quoted directly out of Leviticus. It's, a, it's something called the Leveret Law. And as strange as it might sound to us, the purpose of this that God had put in place, this pattern that God had put in place, was to actually protect the wife, to protect the widow. Not saying that there were not, no matter how nice, you know, how loving those relationships might have been in this theoretical picture. Not saying that, that, that you know, there might not have been good relationships there, but... They would have had their challenges too. But the overall point was that God was trying to protect and provide for the widow in each case. And also, remember that this entire nation is based upon promises. In fact, God's people throughout the ages begins with a promise we see in Genesis 3.15 of a son of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. We look backwards to what Christ has done and forwards to his second return. But at this point in history, they had spent hundreds, if not thousands of years, being taught to look for the one who would be this son, who would be this Messiah. So along with the widow being protected, it would give a chance for God to show his faithfulness by perhaps 
through this next relationship, bringing forth that son. And so they ask this question, you know, all, all of the seven die and then the wife, the woman finally dies. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Right there, he accuses them of being unbelievers. You notice that? He's not just having a discussion. He's not just trying to reason with them. He says to them, you just quoted from the first five books of the Bible. You just quoted from the the part of the Bible that you hold to being inspired, but you don't even believe that. You are in error. You're wrong because you don't believe the scriptures or the power of God. And he says this, at the resurrection. So, you know, this is something that we should learn to. Notice that he doesn't try to explain the resurrection. He just simply says with authority, there's a resurrection coming. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. See, again, the Pharisees, they didn't believe in the full inspiration of all the Old Testament books, but Jesus meets them where they're at. He says, well, let's go back to Exodus then. Let's go back to Exodus, since you claim to believe that. When God spoke to Moses. Do you remember this? In Exodus chapter 3, when God was calling Moses through that burning bush, this is what he said to him. When Moses said, Who should I tell the people that, that, that sent me? What name, what name should I give them? And God says to Moses, I am. Not I was, not I will be, not I'm currently trying to kind of be. But he says, I am. I am the God of Abraham. At this point, Abraham had been dead for a long time. So how is he in a present sense, right? The God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Jesus says, in God saying this, he's saying that the same living relationship that existed between those people and God before they died, continues today it's in what we call the intermediate state all those who have just died between the beginning of time and whenever christ returns we go to a state of existence that is not soul sleep that's not taught in the bible but a state of existence that is called the intermediate state where our spirits our souls go to be present with the lord as paul says to be absent from our bodies as believers, is to be present with the Lord. What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? This day you will be with me in paradise. Not taking a nap. You'll be with me in paradise. These are great promises, are they not? These are the promises that 
will take us through the worst of times and the best of times. But Jesus knows the Sadducees don't believe in things like even angels and the resurrection. So he actually touches on all of them. He touches on the, the belief they have, so, so-called belief in God's first five books of the Bible. But these Sadducees are what we could call basically rationalists. Maybe you know someone like this. Their, their faith is built on their rationale. These Sadducees were more like people who maybe you'll find on documentaries on TV that will talk about things like Jesus walking on water or turning stones into bread or turning the, you know, feeding the 5,000. And when you start listening to what they say, they're explaining away the miracle. These rationalists, they don't believe in the supernatural. And Christian, we must never use the word of God like that. We don't need to be able to put it down on a piece of paper like a mathematical equation to say to someone, there is one God who is one in his essence and his being and his nature, but three in persons. As we read in the Nicene Creed. Those creeds, those confessions, they were put down because there was false teaching arising and they had to hold firm to the trustworthy word as it had been given to them. Jesus is not dealing with these rationalists like a rationalist. There's a lot of people who try to do that and we should never give in to that temptation. Sometimes we have to jump over what appears to be rational and just speak with authority. There is a God who made heaven and earth. He has one Savior that He has sent. His name is Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you tell me this morning or this afternoon that you don't believe in Him, you will stand before Him in judgment at what is called the resurrection. Are you ready for that moment? We don't need to give long and lengthy explanations. Now, there's, there are some explanations of some of these things. And this is what Jesus starts to show them. But we don't have to go beyond Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to see the supernatural. Am I right? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The entire declaration of this book of our faith throughout the ages is that there is one God who is self-existent, uncreated, eternal, unmoved by what is going on, but somehow involved in time, space, and matter. And He's the creator of time and space and matter. That is probably the biggest miracle of all. Everything else that God does in time and space and with matter is flowing out of the fact that He created it and is using it as His clay. And so Jesus speaks to these Sadducees with loving but very clear authority. And He says, it's going to be like the angels. Now let's think about this one. I don't want to be insensitive, but I'll just cut to the point. When we die, we don't become angels. We've all been to funerals where we see this. Heaven got another angel today and stuff like that. I'm sorry, that's just not true. When God created angels, He created angels. They're their own type of creature. That's pretty simply putting it as best as I can, when God created human beings, 
right? Humanity. We are our own kind of creature. And unlike angels, we are made in the image and the likeness of God. In some strange way, even though it would frighten the life out of us to see an angel, we might drop dead if we could see them right now. We are more glorious in a sense than angels. They were created to be ministering spirits to us. That is why the psalmist says in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him even? And that's why the book of Hebrews in the first chapter and second chapter especially is all about showing the superiority of Christ to all men and to all angels. But Jesus says we're going to be like angels. There's at least a couple things he means. First of all, he doesn't mean we become angels. What he means is angels don't get married. There's no marital relation because God created the exact amount of angels that exist and will ever exist. Some of them have become fallen angels, what we call demons. Others remain in heaven, glorifying and praising God. But we're going to be like angels. In other words, when that day comes that the resurrection has taken place, that's the end of time as we know it. The value of marriage and re, um, reproducing image bearers of God has reached its end. There is no need for us to go and be fruitful and multiply anymore because we've entered a new and eternal season of life. So even words start to fail when you start to try to explain these things. But Christ says that it's going to be like that. It's also going to be like angels in the sense that we will never cease to exist in that format. It will be everlasting. It's an immortal type of existence. And so there's a danger in trying to compare this present life to the future. God has not chosen to reveal those things. Paul says in, in I believe, Second Corinthians somewhere there, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the mind the things that God prepared for those who love Him. The things that we are going to behold and experience in the next life. Comparing this life to the next life is a form of idolatry. And the fact that they are trying to use this flawed argument with Jesus shows that they don't even really have true faith in the first five books of the Bible. These Sadducees, these rationalists. And we should understand something very clear from all of this too. Do you want to know what the most rational thing any human being could ever do is? Come to understand what it means to be an image bearer of God and submit our lives to Him. Literally speaking, that is the most rational thing we could do. But Jesus shows the, the evidence of the ongoing future life and the eternality of God's very own nature by saying, remember what God told Moses about this personal covenant name, Yahweh, I am. When he quotes Exodus 3, he's showing these Sadducees the nature of God, which is the purpose of Scripture. This is the primary purpose that God has given us His Word, to understand Him. 
Again, God does not say I was. God wants us to understand that in a very real sense, even though we call ourselves human beings, God is the only real being. His nature never changes. Ever since we came into this building, ever since you started listening to this, ever since I said ever since, we have been going through changes. Constant change is what we know, is it not? Not so with God. God is what the old theologians used to say. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. There's, we were listening to the tune as the service was getting ready to start. There's a, there's a uh, contemporary hymn that says, uh, Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You're amazing, God. All-powerful, unchangeable. Awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, You are amazing, God. Jesus is not playing this game. <laughs> he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And again, what do they do? The crowds hear his teaching and they're astonished. This brings us to the, the third point. The right order and application of God's commands. So the Pharisees, seeing that these Sadducees have now been trumped, they step in. They believe in the full inspiration of all scripture. They say, well, let us have a shot at this. And it says in verse 34, hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, he silenced them. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Basically, this means a lawyer. The Pharisees would have made up the class of people known as lawyers back then. Comes and tests Jesus with the law. And, and the law in that day, because remember, Israel is what you call a theocratic nation. The law would have been God's law primarily. And ask this question, and the question by itself is actually not a bad question. But again, <laughs> verse 35 says, tested him. That's the issue. Here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So Pharisees, as a group who study God's word, they would have spent hours and hours discussing um, the weight that each little law held. 600 and something different laws. Not just the Ten Commandments, but over 600 other laws. They would have spent hours saying, this law is a little bit more important. Okay, well, how can we apply this law? And so Jesus says, I'm going to summarize everything with these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we have no description of any response because again, the people are silenced. They're trying to trap him. And it's like that song that Bob Marley sung. I guess it was quoting scripture from somewhere, but who, who, whosoever diggeth a pit will fall in it. That's what was happening. <laughs> All of Jesus' life, these kinds of people are trying to trap him. And this is the, the hardest attempt, the hottest attempt at entrapment. And all they're doing is falling into their own traps. 
Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. Again, this is a good question to ask. Not the right reason. But notice that Jesus makes a clear distinction. Just like he says that we'll be like angels, not becoming angels, but have certain similarities in our future existence. He says that the second commandment is like it. And all he's doing here, again, is quoting scripture. Do you see how Jesus lived his whole life? Do you see how Jesus won these kind of tests? He didn't come up with some kind of new strategy. He placed himself in his humanity. He was doing this in his humanity. He wasn't cheating because he's the eternal son of God. He took on flesh and he, he had to obey and overcome these kinds of tests as a human. And he overcame them by placing himself under the power, the authority, and the sufficiency of God's word. And Jesus shows us here something important, that we should never try to blend or equalize any command, even the one that is like the first. You notice that? It's like it. If you are to do what I've heard people do and say, if you fulfill the second commandment, then you fulfill the first. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We should never try to equalize or, or, or compare our love for others to our love for God. If we start trying to love others or anything the way we love God, that is the essence of idolatry. Nothing should compare to that love. And that is our greatest struggle. Even as Christians. Thank God that He's given us His Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ. But none of them and none of us today has actually started to love God. Notice the Pharisee who asked this question doesn't respond. See, the, the problem is they were not rendering or giving to Caesar what was Caesar's. They were not believing the scriptures, those Sadducees that they quoted. And this Pharisee, again, they were not loving God. Because none of us loves God until and unless we love His Son that He has sent. All who reject Christ are breaking and are under the coming judgment of God. They're breaking this first commandment and therefore breaking all the commandments. It is until we become lovers of Jesus, those who love Him for who He is and what He has done. It's until then that we have yet to love God. Not a single good deed has any weight outside of a love for Jesus Christ. Loving our neighbors would have included, of course, the Gentiles, which was a real problem for Pharisees like the one asking this question. But this is the, this is the gospel that Jesus is, even in his very responses, displaying for us. That God has come and has loved those who are basically His enemies, even those who are closest to Him, His own people. We are called to love our neighbors and we're called to love our enemies. 
And we see fourthly and finally the right response. The only right response to Jesus is submission to his lordship. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, in verse 42, and now he's quoting Psalm 110. The the Old Testament scriptures were filled, including the Psalms, with what we call uh, messianic passages and, and messianic Psalms. Psalms that when you read them, you realize they're talking about the coming Messiah. Like Psalm 22, for example. Which begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that on the cross. And you read down through that psalm and you realize nobody fits that description outside of him. But in Psalm 110, look at these words he quotes from verse 1. What do you think about the Christ? See, three people, three tests, all failed. Now Jesus is like, yeah, it's my turn. Now you're going to answer me. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David speaking by the Spirit, in other words, under the inspiration of the Spirit as those words are being penned in Psalm 110, speaking by the Spirit, you see? This is how God speaks through His Word. How is it then, Jesus says, that David speaking by the Spirit calls him Lord, calls his son Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and and he uses two different words for the word we see as Lord, but both of them refer to the divine being and then the one who would come that would understand, understood to be the Messiah. How is it that he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is kind of like when Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? He did it in a more intimate setting, in a more personal way. Peter gave a list of names and then Jesus said now who do you say that I am Peter said you are the Christ the son of the living God Jesus in in applying Psalm 110 verse 1 to himself he's doing something spectacular he is showing them that this this prophetic psalm which which tells about a a Messiah who's coming that is both divine and human Truly God and truly man in one person. One person with two natures, unmixed, but in some mysterious way undivided. He's saying this applies to himself. You see, they would have heard all the cries of those demons. Remember how many demons he cast out and what is one of the things that they said to him? Son of David. They gave him that title. The demons showed more wisdom than some of us. Than these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these Herodians. All the people were calling him son of David, son of David. And now he brings this psalm and says, you remember where this comes from? David calls this one who's going to be his son, 
Lord, which would have been blasphemy, except it was true. David understood all of these promises that were made, not just to him, but throughout the ages. That there was going to come one through his line that God would send, that would be born of a virgin, as Isaiah had said, that would, that would take on flesh, that would basically conquer all of his enemies and set up an everlasting kingdom. That was the promise given to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But sin has so blinded us that we can spend our lives reading, studying these words from the Bible and have Jesus Christ standing in front of our faces and not see Him for who He is. Sin has done more than that because even when people recognized Him for who He was, they still had unregenerate hearts. And whether it was love of position or power or prestige or, or, or love of money or whatever it was, comfort, they chose to, in their own will, reject Him. So Jesus quotes this psalm and leaves them with a question. And I think the, the author of this Gospel, Matthew, he's trying to drive this point home to his Jewish brothers and sisters, to his countrymen. He's trying to say, look at the Messiah that we have crucified. Look at the Messiah who was put to death because we rejected Him, but who rose again to life on the third day. Will you now receive Him as the Son of David and the Son of God and the King of God's kingdom? And this is that, the same kind of question that, that I want to close and leave us with. How am I responding to Christ? How are we responding? Make it more personal, just imagining that everyone hearing me is, is just sitting face to face and we're just having a conversation. How do you respond to God's Son? The one who lived a life of sinless perfection, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose again in victory and who's coming at an unknown point in human history bringing history as we know it to its end may we not live our lives and find ourselves caught up with people like this rationalists socialists unbelievers in all sorts of forms even with the scriptures in their hands but may we be those who submit our lives to Him, who repent and believe in Him as our Lord and our Savior. That is the only right response to Jesus. And we're living in a world that since the beginning of time is basically doing what we see in this passage. See, we, we saw it in a small personal setting. These three people with these three tests for God's Son. But this is what we as human beings have been trying to do 
in our own ways, we test God. We put God on trial. It's like earth is putting heaven on the stand and cross-examining God. May we be cross-examined by God through His Word, by the Spirit, and be found as those who have received His Son as our Savior, as our Lord. And let us hear the words now from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 as we close. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May we all, by God's help, do that. As we face whatever test we're about to face this week or whatever we're going through right now. May God help us to stay faithful as we look to Him until He comes. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for sending Your Son to be put through so many trials, so much testing, so much disrespect, so much dishonor, so much unfair treatment. When we see these kinds of passages and we see especially ultimately what happened on Calvary, we see we see a situation where something truly unfair took place. Where we did something that was completely illegal. A crime before heaven and earth. Where we as humanity crucified the only innocent one. But in your divine wisdom, I praise you and I thank you that you were placing the tried and tested Lamb of heaven, the Lamb of God, on the last altar that would ever be needed to be sacrificed for whosoever will believe in Him so that all of our sins were nailed to that cross, past, present, and future. Would you press that truth down into our hearts today? Some perhaps who are struggling to to have a sense of assurance and peace because of what Christ has accomplished. Would you refresh them in that truth? If there's others who are listening, who are afraid of death and are suffering, or, or who are mourning in a hopeless sense over someone who they've lost, May we be reminded of the hope that is in Christ. That all who die in Christ will be raised again to a life that will never end with Him. And would you please again, let this be a day of salvation. That someone would hear that there is a a man named Jesus Christ who, who came to this world. Who was born of a virgin. Who who maintained his sinlessness, who, who died a, a sacrificial death that, that, that we should all die, who took their sins upon him and was punished for sin that he didn't commit. 
who was buried and who rose again three days later, who ascended back to your right hand from where he reigns now by the word through the Spirit and who is coming again 